Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Dan Gediman is a longtime public radio producer whose work has been heard on All Things Considered, Morning Edition, Marketplace, and This American Life. During his career, he has won many of public broadcasting's most prestigious awards. Dan produced the audible documentary series, The Homefront, Life in America During World War II, which was narrated by Martin Sheen. For many years, Dan was the executive producer of the popular public radio series, This I Believe. He has also edited nine This I Believe books, including the New York Times bestseller, This I Believe, The Personal Philosophies of Remarkable Men and Women. He is currently the executive producer of the nonprofit organization Reckoning Incorporated and executive producer of the radio and podcast series, The Reckoning, Facing the Legacy of Slavery in America. And he's with us today to talk about a new project, which we will explore. But first, Dan, I want to say welcome to you. It's, uh, it's good to see and hear you once again. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Uh, the Reckoning, uh, the legacy of slavery in America was so popular, and uh, you really... I came along at, um, at at a great time in America's history, in uh, the history of uh, our understanding of, uh, and we're still doing that as we speak today. It seems like I learned something new um, uh, about uh, the enslaved. I just uh, finished a trip uh, taking a granddaughter to Washington and, and once again, uh, being steeped in uh, Lincoln knowledge and uh, reading uh, everything that I could before and explain, uh, talking with her about it and, and uh, v- visiting once again Ford's Theater and all of that that led up to it. It's just a, uh, a remarkable story that we uh, continues to unfold. Um, but your legacy of slavery in America, which uh, we in central Kentucky heard uh, on WEKU Radio. Um, it was just a, a marvelous uh, work. Uh, where are you on that project before we start talking about the new project? Sure. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for asking. Uh, so the pandemic really, uh, well, it affected everyone. It is still affecting uh, everyone, but it, 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 had a, it severely curtailed our ability to, uh, to produce documentaries and um, uh, and which is actually what led to the project that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, however, then we are uh, working towards the next season of The Reckoning, which is always intended to be a, an ongoing uh, radio and podcast series. The, the first series was focused on the history of slavery in Kentucky um, and, um, uh, and is available, by the way, on our website at reckoningradio.org. And if you click there on the podcast link, there's links to how you can uh, listen to it on all the various major podcasting platforms, Apple and Google and Spotify, et cetera. Um, the uh, next thing we're working on is we're jumping ahead a century and looking at 
how African-American soldiers were treated during World War II. Uh, and a colleague of mine, uh, Loretta Williams, who co-produced the, the first season of The Reckoning, has been working for the past couple of years uh, rep doing reporting on events that happened in Alexandria, Louisiana in 1942, where there was an apparent massacre of black soldiers, and um, which was then uh, covered up by the US government because of, it was considered um, a national security issue because we, we had just started the war with Japan. And the, uh, so that's the story that we're gonna be telling in the second uh, season. And we are waiting with bated breath, Bill, uh, for funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities for this next season. So we're literally hoping to hear any day now about that. Um, you can always put a, in a good word since I know you're, you're plugged <laughs> in on, with those people. I'm on the phone with them every day, you know that, yeah. <laughs> Pick up the bat phone and call mm -hmm. them. Anyway, so um, so that's the what is planned for the next season of the series. And then, then after that, um, we have been slowly working on um, a, another season that uh, we're hoping will be the third season of the series, which is all about the nexus of religion and slavery, and specifically how uh, America's religious denominations either worked toward liberation or oppression. Uh, they were either agents of, you know, uh, abolition or of maintaining the status quo in terms of slavery in America. And uh, it just so happens that Kentucky is at the absolute middle of that debate. Uh, many of the people who were the most um, vocal on both sides of that debate nationally were, were Kentuckians, uh, or, and or many of the pivotal events that happened in the sort of drama around religion and slavery literally happened in Kentucky. For instance, the Methodist church, church broke in two at a convention in Louisville. Um, so there's a whole lot to be said about um, religion and slavery, and um, so that we're, we're projecting that as the third season. So that brings you up to date on what we have coming in the pipeline for the Reckoning radio series and podcast series. That uh, is certainly something to look forward to. And as I mentioned uh, at the very top, uh, it just seems like, and you have discovered it, and you've discovered this next project too, that... Uh, there are still pieces of our history that we're molding and, and melding and, and putting together. And I think um, if you can tell me sort of the, uh, the, the, the genesis of uh, the, the U.S. Colored Troops Project, what it is, but also if I understand uh, correctly, that you sort of uh, maybe stumbled is, is, uh, is too arcane, but you you didn't know that it was out there until somebody found something and then boom, uh, one thing led to another. Yes. So tell us yeah. about this project. Sure. So um, the Reckoning series, the first um, season of the Reckoning, which again, you can find on uh, our website, reckoningradio.org, um, tells the story of a uh, African-American family that descends from people who were enslaved at the Oxmore Plantation in Louisville. And um, in the course of trying to research that family and, and create a family tree for them, I was looking uh, for information about a particular man who was one of their ancestors. And there was a gaping hole in his story. And it occurred to me that he was the right age to have served in the Civil War, and that maybe I could find military records for him and that might fill in some of the gaps. So I went looking for military records for him. And this man's name was James Sanders, S-A-N-D-E-R-S. 
Um, and so I went looking for James Sanders military records and could not find them. And then I had a brainstorm and the brainstorm was, I knew who his enslaver was. His enslaver was the former US Senator from Kentucky, Archibald Dixon, who was one of the largest slaveholders in the state of Kentucky, had, I don't know, 150 or so uh, enslaved people out in Western Kentucky in the Henderson area. And so on a whim, I put in James Dixon into a, a, a website devoted to military um, uh, records, fold3.com. And bingo, there was a Jim Dixon that was in the um, US Army. And when I drilled down and found his uh, records, I found a ledger book that was um, in the National Archives and had been uh, digitized and put on Ancestry and elsewhere online. And I found that he was enslaved by Archibald Dixon, who was had married into this bullet family of the Oxmoor plantation. So all of a sudden, I had a bunch more information about him. I saw that he had this is really pivotal. Okay, so I want to stress this. I found that he had applied for a pension, a military pension. And I found the military pension card for him. And there's this every every one who got a military pension ever, uh, including up to the present day, there's a little index card somewhere sitting in you know the bowels of the um, the government records with all the information about when they applied, how they applied, did they get it, did they not get it, etc. And there's numbers attached to all of them. Well, on this card it said James Dixon, A.K.A. or otherwise known as James Sanders. And I realized, wow, this card is like a, uh, an open sesame, you know, kind of password to realizing who this man was in, in his enslaved life and helps you, helps you understand how he connects to the man that he was known by in, 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 in freedom. So that got me thinking, um, how many other people served in the military, black uh, soldiers served in the military under one name, but were known by another name. And I went, I kind of went down this rabbit hole and I contacted the um, um, Mormon affiliated genealogy uh, organization called Family Search International based in Salt Lake, had a conversation with them and they have a, a, a department of sort of like actuarial researchers. And they did some, um, they looked at all of their records that they have for these pension files and they realized long story short about half of all black soldiers had another name served under another name in the military so what that means is for roughly half of african americans who descend from these soldiers they would never know the name of their enslaved ancestor who served in the military now bill uh, you and I as white Americans, if we had ancestors, for instance, who served in the um, the uh, Revolutionary Ar War in the in the Revolutionary Army, you know, uh, Continental uh, Army, we, we would know that we would be able to find that there's an entire library in downtown Louisville, just devoted to helping people find their Revolutionary War ancestors, the sons of the revolution, daughters of the revolution, there's an entire, as a matter of fact, really, it's sort of the birth of the genealogical movement in this country was all about people trying to figure out how they were related to Revolutionary War soldiers. Well, for African Americans, there's 50% of them will never be able to find out who their ancestors were because of this phenomenon of not knowing who the enslaver was. So when I realized we had access to essentially 
a database of enslaver names and soldier names from Kentucky, I realized that this had real meaning, real consequence. And may I just add a, a, something because this is a history podcast and we want to, uh, this is a truly both interesting and important part of Kentucky's history. Uh, and that is uh, because Kentucky was a union supporting state, just barely, but they stayed in the union during the Civil War, but they still had slavery legally all the way through until the 13th Amendment was passed in December of uh, 1865. That meant that you had simultaneously slavery and Union soldiers coming out of Kentucky. Well, Kentucky was the last state, the last state that allowed black people to join the army. Okay, and this was a major uh, argument between the then governor of Kentucky and Abraham Lincoln. Um, there was a concern that this might cause the state of Kentucky to break away from the Union and join the Confederacy. Um, there might be, you know, even more uh, dissent in the state because of this over the war. And uh, it was, a, I cannot underscore what a big deal this was. As a matter of fact, we cover this in detail in an episode of the Reckoning uh, radio series. So, as, so which, was, uh, which episode is that, uh, Dan? Do, do you know off the top of your head? So it was the episode three of the radio series. So that would make it episode one, two, three, four, five, and six of the podcast series are devoted to the Civil War in Kentucky. And and the reason, and I remember now, and I need to go back and um, listen to the whole series, but especially that, I just finished a uh, a podcast with uh, the very distinguished uh, historian from the University of Kentucky, who you know. In fact, he was on The Reckoning, Dr. George Wright. Yes. And Dr. Wright and I uh, uh, specifically talked about Juneteenth and the origins and where Kentucky played in all of that. But frankly, I don't, it just didn't come up and Dr. Wright didn't uh, offer uh, this uh, conundrum of uh, Kentucky being the, the, the last state uh, involved in, in uh, allowing troops in. I didn't, I didn't realize that. By about a year. So hmm. all the other border states, so Missouri and Maryland and DC and West Virginia, uh, Delaware, they, their African-Americans from those states could join the army as soon as I think the summer of 1863, okay? Um, however, in Kentucky, it took one more year till the summer of 1864. So during that intervening year, 1863, 1864, if you were a black Kentuckian, free or enslaved, you would have had to have left the state of Kentucky to join the army. And thousands of people did just that. They went to Southern Indiana, they went to Southern Ohio, they went to Southern Illinois, they went to Northern Tennessee uh, in, in Union occupied area in Tennessee and joined the army there. Um, but for Kentucky blacks, in particular enslaved people, um, uh, they were not able to join the army until the, the latter part of 1864. So here's the bone that Abraham Lincoln threw to the border states, the, and it was this. If you lose one of your male enslaved men to the Union Army, we'll give you $300 per soldier. If you can prove that A, you are a loyal supporter of the Union, that you did in fact own that person, uh, ins that enslaved person, uh, and that they did in fact serve in the Union Army. So if you could prove those three things, you could get $300. So there was this entire infrastructure built 
Okay, so in the same way that, um, I don't know, after the tobacco settlement, there was an entire infrastructure of lawyers and various people filing various lawsuits pertaining to, to tobacco related issues. There was an entire infrastructure of attorneys in Kentucky who were like ambulance chasers putting ads in the daily newspapers all over Kentucky to help uh, enslavers get their $300, including, by the way, the founder of the Filson uh, Club in Louisville, now the Filson Historical Society, Reuben Durrett, uh, who had ads in every single day's courier and journal, and in fact, all the newspapers throughout Kentucky saying, hey, I can get you $300, and it won't cost you a penny because I work on commission. Mm. You know, he just about had an 800 number on the back of a bus. It was, and this was true for a whole bunch of other attorneys. We digress, but it's because of this infrastructure, because of this $300 per person, essentially reparations payment to enslavers in Kentucky, and other border states that these books were created that kept track of the, this data, who's the soldier and who's the enslaver. So otherwise, so if you've ever watched, if any of your listeners have ever watched episodes of Henry Louis Gates's series, Finding Your Roots, whenever there's an African-American guest, it's a big deal when they can tell them the name of the enslaver of their ancestor. And even a bigger deal if they can use the records of that, ensla that enslaver to learn things about their enslaved ancestors. For example, to find out, to go as far back in their family tree as possible through wills and estate settlements and other kinds of legal documents to find out uh, progressively farther, more distant ancestors, you know, third great grandparents, fourth great grandparents, etc. Something that the average African-American can't dream of doing. The average African-American is, is lucky if they can get to their great grandparents generation, because for a whole bunch of reasons, the great migration, slavery, Jim Crow, all sorts of things that ripped families apart and separated them geographically. But not to mention the fact that the US government and all these other institutions, white institutions, did such a poor job of keeping track of these records. And so even when you had, for instance, uh, something like the Kentucky Historical Society or the, the, the Filson Historical Society, they were not keeping track, by and large, of records in their, uh, in their archives that contain the names of enslaved people. And for one very peculiar reason, but it makes sort of sense, because I've actually talked to people who worked in these archives. It's because they didn't have a last name. It was just Bill and Dan and Jim and Susie. And they're like, how do we archive, how, how do we put those people in our cataloging system when they don't have a last name? So they just didn't. To their credit, I wanna say that the Filson Historical Society is going back through a lot of the papers in their archives, starting with those pertaining to the Bullitt family and the people enslaved by them, and going back and adding those first name references and starting to piece together how these families were, were, were related. So that's the genesis of this project, okay? Starting with military records kept by the US government for the benefit of enslavers, to make sure they would get paid their reparations payments for losing their enslaved people to the army. That's ben, the starting point. What is the Freedmen's Bank? Excellent question. So this is the next most powerful um, data um, that exists for enslaved people, I would say, specifically in Kentucky. Okay, so the, the Freedmen's Bank was established right after 
uh, the Civil War. Um, it, some people confuse it with the Freedmen's Bureau, which was a separate institution. And basically it grew out of a need for newly freed people to put their money someplace. Uh, white banks would not take money from black people by and large. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there was a predatory faux banking industry that existed for free, freed blacks where essentially it's sort of like the opposite of a payday loan operation. Like you put your money in their bank and you get sub, uh, you get a lower rate of return on investment than any other white person would get. So if everybody else got 3%, you got 1%. We, so we digress. So the Freedmen's Bank was, to, was trying to fill that need and allow people to start to grow some wealth, start to, to put some money aside. Now, what's fascinating about this institution, for reasons that I don't really understand, is that they had printed forms whenever anybody opened up an account, and there was a branch in Lexington and there was a branch in Louisville. They would ask you who was, it says master and mistress, so who were your enslavers? What's the name of your spouse? What are the names of your parents? Are, are they deceased or living? Uh, what are the names of your siblings? What are the names of your children? So right there in this little banking register okay, for new customers is basically a three-generation family tree, not to mention the names of your enslavers. Now, not every single person has the, the breadth of that information in their record, but this is such an important resource for African-Americans seeking to learn about their um, ancestors because far more people in Kentucky um, had a banking account with the Freedmen's Bank then served in the military. There's a lot of crossover there, but plenty of people who were either too young or too old to join the army, or they didn't have men of, of service age. Um, but so many women were opening up these accounts. And I want to mention that we, one of the side projects of, of our um, um, Kentucky uh, US Colored Troops project is that we are, we have an intern from Northern Kentucky University that is going through every page of all of these Freedmen's Bank records and digitizing them, putting them into a database, keeping track of these family relationships, the, the parents, the, 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 the children, the grandchildren, et cetera. Um, that institution, unfortunately, because it was poorly capitalized, went belly up. Uh, if I recall, it was the early 80s or late 1870s, it became insolvent and, and, and lots of people who had put their money in there lost all of them. So it had an unhappy ending, but it left behind this extraordinary uh, paper trail of genealogical information about African-American families right after the war that gives us information about uh, family members who may have passed who were enslaved during interbellum times. And let me, um, for my own clarification, understand uh, about the name changes. Were the names of the enslaved changed when they decided to uh, enter the, the Civil War on the Union side? Did they adopt a new name at that point, or was it after they came out and, and might have entered their, their name at that point in the Freedmen's Bank or the records that were being kept. How did that come about again? So uh, you, we're having to make guesses here, but mm. this is how I believe it worked. I believe that the white clerks who were enlisting black enlistees defaulted to 
the name of their enslaver. Okay, especially if they were enlisting with the blessing of their enslaver. So there was a place in the enlistment papers if you were if you're if you were enlisting with the blessing of your enslaver for the enslaver to sign your enlistment paper. Okay, so in pretty much a hundred percent of those cases, the last name used is that of the enslaver. However, so. It, in the case of a free a person who was free or perhaps a person who was escaping their enslaver okay they were not bound by their enslaver's name they would use whatever name they were known by okay which might be the name of an enslaver three generations ago okay so let's just say your your great-grandfather was enslaved by a person named jones that becomes your family name mm. because they're they, it is lost in the mists of history what the African surname might have been, right? So what you're left with is that first white enslaver's name, right? And that becomes the de facto family name in many cases. And so, um, so they might have, okay, chosen, let's just say they had a relatively positive experience with enslaver X. Maybe just maybe when the time came to choose a name, some members of that family would choose that name. So there's an instance of this uh, that we found out about, and that is a, um, Muhammad Ali's great-grandfather was apparently born uh, to a man named Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N. However, v sorry, I, I added an H, uh, G-N. Um, however, he apparently chose the name of his enslaver. And that's what he was known by in the army, and then he kept that name in freedom. And then his 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 gener the generations of his family since then have kept that name. The name is Great House. Okay, so it's a we don't understand why this happened. Why his father's name was Vaughn? Uh, his apparently his mother also went by the, the same surname of Vaughn. They were a married couple, but he chose Great House. So there's mysterious reasons why this happened, but I, I am pretty clear on the fact that whenever you see an enslaver sign giving permission for that person to enter the army, pretty much 100% of those cases, which is what happened to this guy, Jim Dixon Sanders, okay, is that they always add, uh, as a matter of course, the surname of the enslaver. Dan, how was a this is a, a minute point. How, how was Dixon spelled? D-I-X-O-N. It was that Dixon, okay, yes. instead of uh, D-I-C-K-S-O-N, Dixon. Correct, correct. Archibald Dixon. And he was, just parenthetically, and we shouldn't get too lost in the midst of this, but yeah. he was the probably most vocal and consistent Southern supporter of Abraham Lincoln, maybe in the Union. Of the of the border states, he he stuck with them to the bitter end. Even when things were going really badly in Kentucky, he continued to support uh, Lincoln and support the Union effort while being one of the top five enslavers in the state of Kentucky. Did uh, he was from Henderson, Henderson uh, mm -hmm. County, um, and uh, did did he have a property or a property in human being in other parts of the state? He was the largest, I'm told by t folks at the uh, Henderson County uh, uh, Historical Society, he was the largest single uh, landowner in Henderson and I think Ohio, uh, Henderson mm -hmm. and Union counties. Mm -hmm. uh, huge tobacco uh, operations mm -hmm. all throughout that area that employed all sorts of enslaved people. 
Mm-hmm. May I just kind of get back to the essence of our project? Because I it might have gotten sort of lost uh, since we've gotten into the details. No, it didn't. It's uh, in fact every uh, every item that you've mentioned is is uh, fantastic and and so interesting. But we'll we'll return to that, Dan. But let me just take a short break here and uh, thank our wonderful underwriters uh, for our Think Humanities uh, podcast. And they are the folks uh, that uh, are at uh, Spalding University and the writing school there. Uh, We'll be right back after we hear this. As a Kentucky humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. I'm talking to Dan Gediman, who is the executive producer of uh, many public radio uh, programs, uh, the latest being The Reckoning, uh, The Legacy of Slavery in America, and then his new initiative that is just beginning uh, concerning the Kentucky U.S. Uh, Colored Troops Project. And uh, Dan, uh, let's pick it up there. Okay. So I want to just give uh, your listeners kind of a broader understanding of what this project is about. So we've talked about its origins, that it grew out of, we learned about these various um, groups of records that existed that that named the names of Civil War soldiers and gave us uh, explicit information about their enslavers' names, and in many cases, their family names, their families' names, their parents' names, their siblings' names, their children's names, etc. Um, a, 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 um, a powerful additional thing that we found and are still deeply um, immersed in are pension files. So I mentioned earlier that um, many, many uh, veterans of all different wars, you know, going back to the, the Revolutionary War, applied for pensions. Well, I can't say that for, for the Revolutionary War, but I know 1812 Civil War, uh, Spanish-American War and beyond, there were pensions. And um, when you applied for a pension, like any kind of military or any kind of government um, program, there's an enormous bureaucracy and a whole lot of paperwork. So pension files exist in the bowels of the National Archives for each and every person who applies for a pension, whether they receive it or not. And so um, we have found online 550, roughly, uh, pension files for Kentucky soldiers and their widows and dependent children and dependent parents. So for the most part, these are soldiers who died during the war, and then their widows, parents, or dependent children apply for a pension or someone applies on their behalf. Some of these pension files are hundreds of pages long. And they are filled with affidavits and depositions. So those of you who aren't lawyers, affidavits are a statement that you swear to saying that a certain thing happened. A deposition is when a lawyer interviews you and, they, and there's a, someone taking verbatim transcript of this. So it's question, answer, question, answer. So what that means is embedded in these pension files is virtually an oral history of enslaved people in Kentucky because they are being asked granular questions about their lives as enslaved people. 
because a lot of these pension files are being are hinging whether they get the pension or not on such things as were these two enslaved people married did they have these children were these other people their parents so they have to have all these people including their enslavers members of their enslaver family testifying to the fact that yes these two people married they did it on my plantation i was there the minister's name was so and so I know this child was their child because I was there when the child was born. Okay, so think about this. Think about if in your family there were a whole bunch of you know depositions uh, where lawyers had asked all sorts of questions about all the different members of your extended family. And by the way, let's just add a, a twist to it: and you were enslaved, and there's all these uh, legal uh, interviews with your enslaver. Okay, so this is a crazy amount of information about how slavery worked in Kentucky. And there's, I mean, we are, we are, we have barely scratched the surface of this to such a degree that we applied for a grant from the American Historical Association, which is, which uh, is administering a fund of money from the National Endowment for the Humanities for a series of grants to help humanities-based organizations that were affected by the, the pandemic to do special projects. So the special project we're doing with them is we have a uh, a recently graduated um, grad student from Western Kentucky University who is going through every page of every one of these 550 uh, pension files and indexing exactly what's on that in that document. Who are the names mentioned? Uh, what's happening, right? And summarizing that and putting it into a database. And so there are approximately 26,000 pages of these documents. So over the next year, she's slowly going to be putting all this together, and it will all be in a, in a massive database on our website, where you, which is going to be of value to generations of scholars in the future who want to learn about exactly how did slavery work in Kentucky. And we are, by the way, uh, slowly going to be having folks uh, go to the National Archives and look for more and more and more of these pension files for Kentucky uh, African-American soldiers. So these pension files are a, I cannot overestimate what a treasure trove of information they are. Dan, uh, the number 550, but I also see in your literature on the website and, and, and people will become more familiar uh, with that, uh, the, the number 750. And uh, tell us about uh, sure. those individuals and the, and the counties uh, that sure, they're sure, sure. from. First of all, um, I, I should have, I can't believe I'm waiting this long in, the, in our podcast here to mention this. The website that we've put together specifically for this Civil War Soldiers Project, African American Civil War Soldiers Project, is called is KYUSCT. So that's KY for Kentucky, US for United States, and Colored Troops. So USCT, sorry, KYUSCT.org. Okay. Um, and when you go on that website, you'll, there's many different things you can do there. Um, there is a, 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 you can click on a tab called Soldiers Stories. We are, we've hired a series of African-American writers, uh, including writers um, affiliated with the UK MFA writing program led by um, uh, Frank X. Walker and Crystal Wilkinson, including Frank X. Walker himself, who's gonna write one of these. Um, and, and these are biographical profiles of selected soldiers who served in the in the uh, USCT from Kentucky, and right now we've got twelve such stories on our website, including uh, recently published stories uh, about 
um, the co-founders of Simmons College, one of the uh, two HBCUs in Kentucky, um, uh, Elijah P. Mars and his brother Henry. Um, then there are about 225 soldiers that we have uh, re researched so far from Jefferson County. Okay, so the very first phase of our project that we have completed recently is just focusing on Jefferson County where, where Louisville is based. We are now moving in sort of a concentric circle around Louisville, and we are in the next year or two going to be deeply researching soldiers from Nelson County, uh, Washington County, Marion County, Henry County, Oldham County, Trimble County, Bullitt County, uh, and Shelby County, okay? And so uh, then we're going to, the, so you can call that phase one, and that's roughly the first part of that, that's where you get 750 soldiers that we're going to start with um, and focus on. And our then our goal is to move into the Bluegrass region where you're based, Bill, um, and there are enormous um, resources available in the Bluegrass region. There are various African-American historical and genealogical groups in Scott County, in Greene County, in Clark County, in Bourbon County, Madison County, um, that we're going to be partnering with, along with the Kentucky, the, sorry, the African-American genealogy group of Kentucky, um, which we have been working closely with. And as a matter of fact, our project manager, uh, Denise Payton, is a member of the uh, of that group and actually started with us as a volunteer so we have several volunteers from that organization we've got about 25 to 30 at this point african-american volunteer genealogists that are working with us each uh each day uh, who are doing this for the love of it on, in their spare time and by the way let me just say to your listeners since many of you might be genealogy buffs we're always looking for people with some genealogy background even if it's just that you've researched your own family mm -hmm. if you go to our website at kyusct.org and um, click on get involved there's an opportunity there uh, to to become a volunteer for our organization and also we have an internship program and we have uh, students from NKU from W uh, from Western Kentucky University from U of L uh, we've had some from Simmons um, and hopefully we will have many more uh, Kentucky um, uh, students as interns and so the ultimate goal of the project just to I haven't gotten a chance to say it is to create a family tree for every single one of these soldiers to go as far backwards in time as possible using these various records that we've talked about um, that give us glimpses into the upper reaches of the, the families during enslavement and down as far as close to the present as possible to connect present day African-Americans with their enslaved ancestors who were members of the um, United States Colored Troops from Kentucky. And um, I don't have to tell you that this is your life's work. It's right there. Honestly, this is a decades long project because we there are 23,703 23, soldiers who in African-American soldiers who enlisted from Kentucky in the Union Army. Then there is a whole nother cadre who were born in Kentucky, but enlisted in another state. We, I haven't even quantified that number, but it's somewhere between 20 and 30,000 at least. That's a lot of people to research. Permit me to uh, also add, if you will, it's my understanding that there were African-Americans that were um, persuaded to join the Confederate cause also. So this is a whole nother episode. Um, from the research I've done, 
it was primarily if there were African Americans who were um, anywhere near a, a military installation for the Confederate Army, it was as servants, cooks, mm. uh, or other support um, positions. They were not soldiers, mostly because there was a, a, a terrifying fear of armed African Americans. And by the way, there was a terrifying fear of armed African Americans in Kentucky. And if in our in, in the reckoning, uh, the documentary series that we've done that you can hear at reckoningradio.org, um, we have it is it is throughout several episodes of this is the the grave fears expressed by Kentuckians once black soldiers were allowed to exist. Okay, the whole idea of putting guns in the hands of, of black people, free or enslaved, the thought immediately was there will be an insurrection, they will kill us in our sleep. Okay, hmm. and so at the mm -hmm. very, very, at the very end of the Civil War, as the Confederacy was in their death throes, I can't remember the name of, who, of the person, but there was a member of, of Jefferson Davis's cabinet who pushed hard for um, blacks to be conscripted into the Confederate Army. And he was voted down in the, in the um, Confederate uh, Congress, okay, be because of this loudly stated fear that there will be, this, is, this will start an insurrection. Once you give them guns, uh, they, will, they will kill us. So that's the reason why, to my knowledge, there are very, very, very few actual black uh, soldiers in uniform in the Confederacy that were anything other than manservants to the soldiers that they were uh, slaves of. Well, I'm also very interested in um, uh, when you're going to get to southern Kentucky, uh, to south Ooh. central Kentucky, and to my home county of Barron, uh, because um, this is uh, uh, selfishly uh, on, on my part. Dixon, uh, D-I-X-O-N, is a family name, and um, I'm, I'm interested in, in uh, my very amateurish uh, genealogical uh, search, but uh, I have a, a wonderful niece who's so uh, uh, adept and, and has looked at a lot of this, is, is also on this march to, uh, to find out a little bit more about the, uh, the, the, our relatives. So, um, so let, let me tell you that we are, so this is all, we're a nonprofit organization, so this is all pending funding. And may I just say, if there's anybody in the listening audience who would be interested in helping to support our project, <laughs> there is a donate button uh, on our website, uh, both of our websites, but kyusct.org and click on the donate button. But also you can contact us with any inquiries uh, through the contact link. Um, and we are actively looking for foundations and other funders to, in particular, help us research into these other regions of the state, including South Central Kentucky. So South Central Kentucky is a very interesting place, um, whether it's, you know, Barron County or whether it's the, the counties on the border, mm -hmm. like Trigg County and Christian County and Logan County, Logan. Um, mm -hmm. where you have a large number of, of, of black soldiers crossing the border into Tennessee and enlisting in in particular in Clarksville, Tennessee, where there was a large military installation, Union military installation, and they're enlisting down there and joining regiments affiliated with, with Tennessee. Um, also, Barron County in particular, may I mention, if you go on our website and look at um, the soldier stories, you will see a series of photographs of soldiers in uniform from the 108th uh, US uh, Colored Infantry Regiment. And they were mustered in two places, Bowling Green and Louisville. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
of this particular regiment is pretty much 50% soldiers from South Central Kentucky walked to Bowling Green and enlisted, or soldiers from the, the generally speaking, the Louisville area who walked to Louisville Twin. Dan, uh, uh, one real quick um, uh, mention of something uh, as we uh, finalize our conversation. Mm -hmm. If people will go to the website, and I certainly encourage them to do so, the the uh, both websites, uh, the the U.S. Colored uh, uh, website is the one I'm talking specifically about now. Where did you find those photographs, and who was uh, what was the process of someone uh, of these uh, soldiers posing for those photographs? They are absolutely breathtaking. Okay, so let me just put a little plug in here. Uh, there is a wonderful book. Uh, it's part of a series called uh, Faces of the Civil War, uh, but there's a book, and they're all written by a guy named Ron Coddington, Ronald Coddington. They're all published by uh, Johns Hopkins Press, um, and they were good enough to give us permission to use uh, 10 chapters from that book, and the book is African American Faces of the Civil War, and there's 75 photos of soldiers in that book uh, that are most of them uh, or a large portion of them come from a, a, a photo uh, archive at Yale University. That's where the, the 10 photos we, we have on our website came from. Um, but a lot of them are held in private hands, various uh, photo collectors. And um, so what he did in this book is he picked 75 of these photos of soldiers and then told the stories of those soldiers, researched them. He's a, a brilliant historian and journalist. Um, so, uh, so the short answer is the photos we have um, an officer, a white officer of the hundred who, who, who led one company, uh, Company C, I think it was, Company, company F, I take that back, of the 108th in, uh, USCI Infantry uh, Regiment, took the members of his company to a professional photographer in Rock Island, Illinois, where they were uh, working, by the way, as guards for a Confederate prison. So, or a union prison of holding Confederate prisoners. And this was done almost like, um, you know how the whole Abu, Abu Ghraib prison uh, um, scandal that happened where they were making, you know, Muslims, you know, whatever, eat, you know. Right, waterboarding and all yeah, that. Yeah, but, but also things yeah. to just humiliate them. Right. So they went out of their way to have black soldiers uh, as their prison mm -hmm. guards. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what these men were doing. And on an off day, they went to a photographer's studio and posed for photographs. Mm -hmm. um, this was, by the way, the heyday of photography. It was like, it was the big thing. It was like the internet of, of its day. And everybody mm -hmm. who needed to have a little photograph. So these are very small photographs, like pocket-sized photographs. Mm -hmm. And many, many people would, would get these and then send them to their family. So it was a, a big thing to collect these photographs of your various family members, especially mm -hmm. those who were in uniform. Yeah. Dan, um, you bring such uh, passion and such excitement uh, to the work that you do every day. I mean, this is your job um, and and uh, and you've done. Uh, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, this is your job, but it's uh, you love it so much that you can just hear it in your voice and uh, see it on your face. And uh, I think that, um, as I said, life's long work. Uh, I mean, you, this is going to take you and 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 others and volunteers and 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 students uh, uh, a number of uh, 
months and years and decades uh, to put all this together. But boy, what a what a project. And, and again, one more time, uh, go to our website, kyusct.org, if you would like to get involved in any way as a volunteer genealogist, uh, as an intern, as a donor, um, or just go and, and there, there are places there where you can, if you're African American, you can, you know, try to see if you might have an ancestor, uh, you know, uh, in one of these, uh, again, so far, we're, we're focusing largely on the Louisville area, but, but that will expand over time. But there's also a place for people to search by enslavers. So if you're curious whether there might be enslavement in your family's history, there's a way to look there. Uh, and eventually we're going to have this set up so that um, very, very soon, so that uh, we're gonna have instructions. So if you're African-American and you wanna find out if you might be related to one of these soldiers, you just put in the eldest, the names of the elders in your family that you know. So if you know your grandparents' names, put them in. If you know your great-grandparents' names, put them in. And then uh, our uh, you know, software is gonna look through all the names in all the, the database of all the extended family of these soldiers. And if there's a hit, we'll let you know. And then you'll see how you are related to these soldiers and beyond. Yeah. Magnificent. Uh, Dan Gediman, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. We look forward to updates on this project uh, as you go forward. And we appreciate your time this morning. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.